0: Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. 19-year-old John H. McGoran a signalman aboard the Tennessee-class battleship, USS California, later said of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, If you didn't go through it, there's no words that can adequately describe it. If you were there, then no words are necessary. However, an attempt must be made. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 229, The United States' First Shot of World War II. Last time, as we saw, the Japanese diplomats, Ambassador Nomura and Special Assistant Kurusu had delivered the 14-point note from the Empire of Japan only after Operation Z had commenced the air attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. The final part of the message had been vague, indirect, thanks to the Japanese military, but they more than made up for that with their early morning air raid on the unsuspecting U.S. naval forces. Of the six Japanese carriers that made up the tip of the spear of the Kido Butai, the Japanese strike force, Sub-Lieutenant Iyozi Fujita was aboard the Soryu. Like many of the fighter pilots who would fly with him that day, he assumed that this was to be his last day on Earth. Still, he arose at 3.30 a.m., dressed, and slid a picture of his dead parents into his jacket. This carrying of a photo of some family member was repeated over and over as were the thousand-stitch belts that many of the pilots wore previously some female member of the pilots family had stood near a local temple and asked women passing by to sew a french knot stitch the cloth now worn by these young men was to bring them luck in battle still early in the morning the pilots like squadron leader lieutenant zenji abe who was a dive bomber pilot from the carrier Akagi and who would be a part of the second attack wave, then stopped by one of the Shinto shrines each ship had on board to say a prayer. As time was critical, the shortened version of the ceremony involved a silent prayer, two hand claps to get the attention of the gods, and a quick bow. It ended with more than one shot of Saki. The pilots then had breakfast, but on this morning they shared a ceremonial meal, and were given a box lunch for their trip. Now it was time for the mission briefing, even though the men had memorized the details by this point. The first wave's priority were the carriers and battleships. If none were accessible, then the cruisers and destroyers would become their focus. The second wave were to seek out the carriers, then cruisers, and finally, any battleships left undamaged. As for the massive fuel storage facilities, they were not a part of the plan, as Yamamoto and the other architects of Operation Z wanted to focus on the enemy's war vessels. What the Japanese military wanted was the Americans to be unable to assist in the defense of the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, and the area of Southeast Asia in general. Specifically, the Philippines, which could, if left in American hands, be able to disrupt the sea lanes off the Philippines' west coast that led to the East Indies. More generally, the Japanese, like all other naval powers, being students of Alfred Mahon's dictum that stressed the importance of the battleship, one of the Americans left feeling hopeless and willing to negotiate. Destroying their vaunted dreadnoughts of Battleship Row should accomplish this. Commander Mitsuo Fuchida, a bomber pilot who would be leading the first attack wave, and had besides coordinated the aerial attack, awoke at 5 a.m. He, like everyone else, was a bundle of nerves, but determined to do his duty, even if it meant his death. But soon he came upon another officer, who genuinely seemed calm. The other man looked at Fuchida and said, Honolulu sleeps. How do you know? The commander shot back, to which the man replied, The Honolulu radio plays soft music. Everything is fine. An hour before dawn, the Japanese strike force had reached its jump-off point. Admiral Nagumo, in overall command of the task force, turned the operations over to the other key architect of the coming attack, Commander Ninoru Genda, a pilot and a staff officer of the Kaga's 1st Aerial Division. Genda was not only responsible for talking his superiors into amassing several carriers for this attack, but was instrumental in developing the shallow torpedo techniques about to be used on the American battleships. Genda told Admiral Nagumo, I am sure the airmen will succeed. As the carriers' crews were going over their various aircraft one last time, the cruisers Chikuma and Tone each launched one floatplane. Their job was to fly over the naval base and report back the enemy's ship's locations, the wind, and general weather. Of course, there was a chance that the two planes would be spotted, and more certainly that their radio signals back to the strike force would be picked up. But Admiral Nagumo and Commander Genda agreed that it was a risk that had to be taken. As the carrier Akagi was Nagumo's flagship, it would be in charge of sending the signal to the rest of the fleet. At the moment, a set of its combat pennants were at half-mast. This was the signal for, get ready. Only when and if these were raised to the top and then quickly lowered would the signal, launch and attack, be given. This last gesture was carried out. At 5.50 a.m., with the strike force still some 220 miles, or 354 kilometers, north of Oahu, the carriers increased their speed to 24 knots and turned in to the eastern winds. Despite the time of year, the sky was clear, though less so over Pearl. However, the waters were anything but. Just before the planes were to start taking off, Waves swept over the sides and across the carrier's decks. The flight decks themselves tilted just over ten degrees. At any other time, no planes would have been risked under such conditions, what with the rolling, the darkness, and the high winds coming over the decks. It was Fuchida's call to make, but he knew what decision it had to be. So when the Akagi's air officer turned to him and asked Should they proceed, Fuchida replied, If we coordinate the takeoffs with the pitching, we can launch successfully. And in this, Fuchida's bomber would be one of the first to launch. The decision made, the battle flag was added to the Z-flag from the Russo-Japanese War. But it was a green lamp, waved in a circular motion, that signaled takeoff. The Zero fighters took off first from the carrier Soyu and, like Fuchida, timed it to leave the deck just before the massive structure started its downward pitch. The next plane was quickly moved into position. Within 15 minutes, the entire first wave was in the air. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. With each rise of the six carrier's decks, another plane took off. The various squadrons rose to a particular altitude to meet up with their comrades. Then they circled as other planes arose from the sea to find their place. The first attack wave would consist of 183 planes broken into three groups. The first group, whose targets were the battleships and aircraft carriers if any of the latter were in port, was comprised of 49 Nakajima B-5N bombers called Kates by the Americans. Then there were the 40 B-5N bombers armed with Type 91 torpedoes, which had wooden aerodynamic stabilizers attached to the tail fins, which would come apart when they hit the water. This was to help them strike at the ships in the shallow harbor. The second group was made up of 51 Aichi D-3A VAL dive bombers, or VALs, to the Americans, which carried a 550-pound general-purpose bomb. Their targets were the airfields of Ford Island in the center of Pearl Harbor and Wheeler Field, 5 miles or 8 kilometers north by northwest of Ford Island. Being a part of the first wave, their targets were the American airplanes on the ground, as to negate any American response when the second wave came, but also to make sure that the enemy did not launch its own air attack at the Japanese carriers should the Americans discover their location. The third group of the first wave was made up of 43 Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighters, who were also to go after American planes, parked at Ford Island, Hickam Field, just south of Battleship Row, Wheeler Field, and Barber's Point, to the southwest of the stationary battleships. As for these heroes, Japanese under-appreciated fighters, at least by the Americans and British, back in 1940, Commander Genda had been sent to London during the Battle of Britain, as a military attache. With his knowledge of aircraft, he surmised that the A6M-0 was more maneuverable than the Hawker Hurricane Mark I, the Supermarine Spitfire Mark I, and later the Messerschmitt BF-109E. The Zero, at least compared to the Allies' earlier fighting aircraft, could climb faster, turn tighter, and cruise longer. However, the Zero had its drawbacks. Most importantly, the Zero, probably because of its maneuverability, did not possess self-sealing tanks, that is, two layers of rubber, one vulcanized and one natural, that would plug up a leak if the bullet went through the fuel tank in its wings. In time, the American fighters, which had the rubber coating, would take advantage of this. But during the first days of war, with the Japanese pilots having gained much experience in China and in possession of such a quick, powerful aircraft, getting close enough to a Zero to take it out, presented its own problems. And the pilots about to attack Pearl Harbor had been strenuously training for ten months. So the Zeros, along with the dive bombers, would hit the Americans' defenses, while the B-5N torpedo bombers would make for Battleship Row, on the southeastern side of Ford Island. There, seven battleships were in dock, along with the repair vessel Vestal. The USS California, another battleship, was just to the south of these seven vessels, preparing for inspection. The B-5N bombers could release their torpedoes while at relatively fast speed, but for this attack, They would slow down to almost a stalling speed and lower themselves to a mere 25 feet above the waves. Their goal was to sink the battleships on the outer ring as the battleships were mostly stacked in twos or double berthed side by side. It would be Fuchida that would lead his high-level bombers that were to target the inner ring of battleships along Battleship Row. Going back a few hours, at 3.42 a.m., the American minesweepers Condor and Crossbill were patrolling 13 miles southwest of Pearl's entrance. That's when the Condor's watch officer, Ensign McCloy, saw a strange shape some 100 yards off. Whatever it was, it was not a wave too consistent, and whatever it was, it was heading for the harbor's entrance. McCloy got someone else to look at the object through his binoculars. The second man said, That's a periscope, sir, and there aren't supposed to be any subs in the area. It was then the object turned abruptly. Perhaps it had spotted the condor at the same time McCloy spotted it. The condor signaled the nearby destroyer, USS Ward, giving what information it could The ward's captain, Lieutenant William Outerbridge, was awakened. It was his first day on his first patrol of his first command. But to his credit, Outerbridge sounded general quarters and had his men search for the sub with lookouts and sonar. The search went on for about an hour, and then the ward was moved closer to Pearl's entrance. Because, for one, they certainly hadn't found anything, and two... It was last spotted heading for the harbor. Yet the destroyer could not regain contact, and the hunt was stopped at 4.43 a.m. Just three minutes later, the second minesweeper, Crossbill, was due to come back to Pearl, so the crew in charge of the anti-torpedo nets opened the gate. The Crossbill went past the crew at 5.32 a.m. As the Condor was also due to report back in, the gate was left open. Additionally, as a tug was to leave soon after, the crew decided to leave the gate open. Hence, the net that was to stop any normal-sized sub from gaining entrance was left down, from 4.58 to 8.40 a.m. The Japanese midget subs had that much time to enter the harbor, to make ready for their attack. When all 183 aircraft of the first attack wave were in their various formations, they turned and made for Ford Island. Fuchida and his high-altitude bombers were at 9,800 feet. To his left were the dive bombers, under the command of Lieutenant Commander Takahashi at 11,000 feet. It's worth noting that Takahashi would be the first pilot of the attack to drop his bombs, but as will be seen, his being the first gave the Americans a slight warning before Battleship Row was attacked. To Fujita's right were Lieutenant Commander Shigiharu Murata's torpedo bombers at 9,200 feet. But above them all were Lieutenant Commander Shigeru Itaya's Zeros at 14,100 feet. The high-level bombers each had one 1,800-kilogram, 16-inch shell, which meant they each got only one chance. And Fuchida was not feeling confident about the outcome. In fact, he was praying for at least a 20% hit rate. The reason why he was rather downcast was because the first wave's success or failure would determine the rest of the attack. If the first air attack could not cause enough damage and confusion and destroy enough enemy warships, then the Americans would have a chance to strike back at the Japanese fleet. That being the case, the carriers to the north would have to switch out their aircraft to torpedoes, to take on the charging American battleships. But if things went well, then a third wave was possible, with horizontal bombers that would have another crack at the Americans. At that point, only high-level bombing would have any chance of hitting the American vessels without risking the Japanese pilots, as surely the enemy would have all guns blazing. With the first attack wave flying into the early morning light, the carrier crews worked strenuously to ready the aircraft of the second wave of 171 planes. By now, the men were into a rhythm, and at 7.25 a.m., the second wave was launched. The pilots of the second wave knew theirs would be a harder time, as the element of surprise would be lost. Still, They hoped that their comrades of the first wave would create enough chaos so that only a few guns would be shooting back at them. The men of the second wave, like Zenji Abe, also hoped that the five midget subs had been able to gain entrance and would also start their attack once the first bombs fell. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. As the sun began to come over the horizon, the cloud layer between the airplanes and the sea surface now became visible. What was not visible was the Pacific Ocean. Hence, Fuchida, in the lead, knew he could have been swinging off course. To compensate, he switched on his radio direction finder to catch the Honolulu radio station that was playing music, but only to direct the U.S. Army Air Corps' B-17s, coming in from California. Fuchida found that, indeed, he had begun to stray off course. So he told his accompanying pilots to do the same and target the signal from the KGMB radio station. But then Fuchida finally tuned his equipment even more and began to hear the station's output. They were in the middle of giving the forecast. Averaging partly cloudy, with clouds mostly over the mountains, cloud base at 35,000 feet, visibility good, wind north 10 knots. At this moment, Fuchida truly must have felt that the seven kami, or gods of fortune, were paving the way for a successful strike. The Americans had no idea of what was about to happen. The radio station was inexplicably playing through the night, and the weather was perfect. It's doubtful that Fujita would have been worried, even if he had known of the incoming B-17s. Then again, they had been stripped down, practically defenseless, to reduce their weight for the long flight. Previously, at 6.30 a.m., the commander of the supply ship, Antares, which was towing a barge just outside Pearl Harbor's entrance, spotted a strange-looking submarine about 1,500 yards off starboard quarter. The commander then contacted the destroyer Ward, which had searched for an hour earlier that morning. Once again, Lt. Alderbridge, Ward Skipper, was awakened. He was brought up to speed on these latest events, and for him, his next move was straightforward. I was convinced it was a sub. It wasn't anything that we, the United States, had, and we had orders that said any sub operating in the restricted area, not being escorted, should be attacked. So, at 6.40 a.m., he once again sounded General Quarters. The Ward's speed was increased to 25 knots, and its guns were made ready. When the vessel came within 50 yards of the mysterious sub, Ward's number one gun rang out. This was at 645. The shot missed, but then the number three gun went off, fired by Captain Russell Knapp, who was using the gun stationed on the Ward's galley roof. Knapp managed a direct hit at the sub's waterline. The first shots of America's entry into World War II had just occurred. Not that the men of the ward had any idea of its significance, or of the larger looming threat. With the ward's speed, it was soon over the sub's location, so Outerbridge had depth charges released. The result was the sub shot out of the water, enough for the crew to see its periscope, and conning tower. Another gun scored a direct hit. From what the crew could see, the sub then went down, for the last time, in 1,200 feet of water. Oil slowly came to the surface in its place. With the excitement over, Outerbridge reported the events to Commander McGinnis of the Patrol Wing 1 at the Kaneohe Naval Air Station. At 6.53, Outerbridge gave the same report to the watch officer of the 14th Naval District. As something was clearly happening, Commander Vincent Murphy of the War Plans Office was contacted. He looked up the latest plans in case of war and saw that it was his duty to contact the carriers to bring them back to Pearl with their task forces. On up the chain of command, that morning's actions were sent. Some believed it was real, others that this was just the latest of numerous sightings by excitable young and or inexperienced men. Eventually, around 7.30 a.m., word of all this reached Admiral Kimmel, who was going to play golf that day with General Short. Kimmel, to his credit, replied, I will be right down. However, he was of the opinion held by Admiral Claude Bloch, commander of the 14th Naval District, who wanted more information, preferably verification, by another ship, before taking more drastic action. It should be noted that if this decision turned out to be a mistake, then Kimmel, the ranking officer, not Bloch, would be held responsible. And then, at 7.33, General Marshall's warning that at 1 o'clock Washington time, the Japanese ambassador was going to deliver an ultimatum to the White House and had been told to destroy his code machine, arrived. It came three minutes past the actual deadline. However, Marshall's message continued, We are not sure what exactly this entails. The Army office in Honolulu was also told to warn the Navy. However, as Marshall's message was not marked urgent in any way, it was given to a messenger boy who would deliver it sometime that day. 7.33 a.m. was 1.03 p.m. in Washington, three minutes past Foreign Minister Togo's deadline to have the 14-point message delivered. But as we have seen, Ambassador Nomura had not yet handed the papers over to Secretary of State Hull. At that moment, Fuchida's first attack wave was only 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, north of Oahu.